This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. My two guests might not seem to be linked, at least not at first. Vicki Funk is a senior research botanist and a curator at the Smithsonian Institution. Yes, the same Smithsonian you might have heard about in Washington, D.C. And as a botanist, she's very interested in plants. My other guest is Richard Pyle, who's part of the Hawaii Biological Survey, and he spends a lot of time in the ocean. And from what I've learned in some very deep parts of the ocean, studying fish and how some of them pretend to be other things. So what links these two scientists? Well, you might be asking that question. They're both looking for new species and in some very exotic places. They're also very busy building computer systems that will help scientists know what they've found. I want to welcome you both. Vicki, thanks for coming. Thank you for asking me. And welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. Now, with Ask a Biologist, I have to admit and apologize that we've been very animal-centric. So I was really excited that I got to have Vicki on the show. What kind of plants do you study? I study a family called the Compositae, which is interesting because the name describes the group. The flower is actually a composite of many flowers sitting in the same place. So you have a composite inflorescence, and the, the family is called a Compositae. A Compositae. Okay, and for uh, just the average person, what would be the name of the plant? Ah, I can give you several very interesting plants that belong to this. The sunflower, lettuce, and thistles. And thistles. And dandelions. Oh, and dandelions? Well, the dandelions I hate to have in my yard. <laughs> and the sunflowers, uh, these would be the same kind of sunflowers like my wife likes to plant in exactly. the backyard? Exactly. Oh. If you look at it, and if you watch the birds on it, you will see that each of those sunflower seeds is a separate flower. And you'll watch the finches hanging on the edge of the sunflower head, leaning over and picking the seeds out one at a time. Okay. Well, so you have been studying these composites. And my question is, why? I mean, what, what got you turned on? I think what turns everybody on in biology is they find some question that they can't answer. I had a question about how so many sunflowers came to be. There's 25,000 species of sunflowers. And I wanted to find out why there were so many. And that led me into looking at the field of study called taxonomy, where we name things, and we look at how they're related to one another. 25,000. Wow. There are a lot of cities that don't even have that many people in them. That's right. Okay. 25,000. They're not all in my backyard. No. They're everywhere except Antarctica. Everywhere except Antarctica. All right. Today. And they used to be in Antarctica. Hmm. So are you going to tell me you do some traveling? A lot. A lot of traveling. A hmm. lot. Well, this is part of the theme of the show, because... Being a scientist, especially a biologist, could be the greatest career for travel and exploration anyone can have. So name a couple places you've been that are pretty exotic. Tibet. Tibet. Mm -hmm. I would say the next most exotic place would be the tops of some of the mountains in South America because some of the plants I work on actually grow in the melt water that comes off glaciers. So you have to climb all the way up to the glacier in order to collect them. Just the opposite of what Richard does. Right. Actually, you're a perfect guest. <laughs> it turns out that you're going off onto these exotic places, but you're traveling all over the globe. And Richard, you really aren't traveling that far, but you are traveling really deep. 
Well, it's interesting. I actually do cover a lot of horizontal ground, except I shouldn't say ground because it's ocean. The Pacific Ocean is the largest body of water on Earth. It covers a big chunk of it, so traveling from one side of the Pacific to the other is a much farther distance than traveling, say, from the United States to Europe. So it's a very big area, and I have been all over, including the Indian Ocean. However, what's really fascinating to me about what I do is that we can get on an airplane and fly halfway around the world all the way around the world really easily. We've been able to do that for decades. But my world, a few hundred feet below the surface, has somehow been almost impossible for us to get to. So horizontally, we can move thousands of miles. Vertically, we're separated by a barrier that's less than a football field. Right. So I've read that you're a scuba diver. And we have a lot of questions that come in to ask a biologist. And, you know, that... that fascination with the ocean is definitely there. But to actually be able to dive, and you don't just dive like the everyday kind of, what would you call? Recreational um, diver. Yeah, recreational diver. You dive to crazy deep places. I mean, crazy deep. Deep is a very relative term. In my world, in the scuba diver's world, deep means anything more than about 100 feet below the surface. The ocean goes seven miles deep. Now, the deepest I dive is about 500 feet, which to a scuba diver is jaw-droppingly deep. But uh, to a submarine, it's nothing. It's just a tiny little distance. So in a sense, yes, in the context of diving, I do go quite deep. In the context of the Pacific Ocean, I barely scratch the surface. So if you dive to 500 feet, are you using those exotic gases, the ones that make you sound like a chipmunk? As a matter of fact, I do. Uh, For a lot of complicated reasons, helium is a good gas to breathe when you go down underwater where there's a lot of pressure. And so when we talk to each other underwater, it's really quite silly. We sound like, you know, Mickey Mouse or the chipmunks uh, babbling to each other. And uh, it's funny because I've been in situations where we've been surrounded by sharks, like hundreds of sharks, 400 feet deep in some remote reef in Papua New Guinea, and we're backs are up against the wall and we're very nervous and then somebody says what kind of sharks are those and it just takes all the tension out of the situation instantly (laughs) Um, I would also like to point out that just recently I was reading an article about the Pacific because I do some work on the islands the terrestrial Pacific and I was surprised to find that two thirds of the marine diversity of the globe is found in the Pacific Ocean wow two thirds Yeah. amazing All right, so crazy deep for something without having a submarine, 500 feet. What are you looking for that's down there? Well, that's a really interesting question. As it happens, our ability to explore this world is sometimes limited by our technology. And historically, technology has allowed us to sample very deep water in the bottom of the ocean by dragging nets across it, trawls. But we can't do that in coral reefs because the coral reefs have so many sharp rocks and things that the trawls get hung up. So the way you get into coral reefs is you drop a baited hook, a hook and line. But only the large fish will take that. Coral reefs are dominated by little tiny fish that would never take a baited hook. How tiny are we talking? We're talking, uh, some of them are uh, less than a quarter of an inch long as adults. Some of them get quite large, but uh, the, the large ones are usually caught by hook and line, so we already know about them. But the many, many, many we don't know about, you really have to go down there to find them. Now, one way to get down there is with a submarine. Everyone is familiar with a submarine. Submarines are great, except for two things. One, they're extremely expensive, sometimes $40,000 for one dive. That's, that's a lot of money just to spend a few hours down there. And even if you have that money, when you get down there, you're inside a giant metal sphere and looking through a tiny window. You can't really get into the coral reef. You can't take a submarine into a cave because if it gets trapped, who's going to come rescue you? So submarines are very limited on coral reef environments. A scuba diver, however, can get right there inside the coral reefs. 
Now, one of the interesting things about what I do is I use something called a rebreather. Now, a rebreather recycles the same breath. You exhale it and re-inhale it again, and it scrubs out the bad stuff and replaces the oxygen, and, and it's wonderful. And it's actually very old technology. It's been around longer than scuba. The problem is a rebreather has a variable oxygen percentage. When we breathe, the main thing we need is oxygen. In a rebreather, if you're rebreathing the same breath over and over, if you use up all the oxygen, you could die. So you need sophisticated electronics to monitor the oxygen and replace it when it's needed. Now, those electronics haven't really been around in a reliable way until the last couple of decades. So this new technology of electronics that we can fit into small spaces allows us to build rebreathers that let us breathe these helium mixtures much more safely down deep. Your little fish, are they colorful? Many of the fish we find are incredibly colorful, probably some of the most colorful organisms in the world. When you see these paintings of coral reefs, you always see these incredible colorful fish. And some of the ones that live down deep are some of the most colorful of all. However, a lot of them are actually quite drab. They're just sort of brown and gray, and they live inside caves, and you would almost never notice them if you didn't know to look for them. So I go back to Vicky with her plants. Uh, I can look out, and I see plants that are very, very colorful too, and some that would be described as drab. Grasses would be drab. Right. So what's nature doing here? We got some color going on and then other times we don't. Is it the same thing for plants and animals? I don't know. I mean, I can say that for plants, the ones that I work on, the color is definitely related to reproduction. So you have bees that are attracted to the plants. You have birds that are attracted to the plants. The plants that are drab are often wind pollinated. So the wind comes along, blows the pollen. They don't need bees or birds, so they don't have to be colorful. So that's sort of a primary driving force, I think, in the evolution of some of these. Okay, so the plants are trying to attract the animals to help them pollinate so that they can actually have more plants. Okay, that's great. What's going on with these fish? Well, in the fish world, a lot of the fish, it's for the same reason. Uh, The same species need to be able to spot and recognize each other, and the colors are a good way to do that. In fishes, though, there are all kinds of really fascinating examples of color patterns that are meant to do other things. For example, the butterfly fishes, which are what a lot of people are familiar with, the very pretty, colorful fish you see in aquariums and things like that. A lot of them have a black spot near their tail and a black stripe running through their eye. And you wonder, why is this pattern showing up and again and again? And it turns out, by obscuring their eye with a black stripe and putting a false spot near their tail, a predator will think they're facing the wrong direction and expect them to swim in the opposite direction that they actually swim. So when a predator strikes, it's expecting to move in the direction of the eye because the predator's evolved to recognize what an eye is and that that's the direction the fish will swim. But the butterfly fish will bolt the opposite direction because the eye is camouflaged and they have a false eye near the tail. You also do some work with fish that not only do camouflage, but they also can change the way they look so that they appear like something else. And we call it, what I think, the good word for people to know, mimicry. Well, mimicry, right. That's one of the areas of great interest to me. I find that to be one of the most fascinating things that shows up again and again in coral reef fishes. And the reason I find it fascinating is some of these examples are so precise they fool scientists. I'll just give you a few examples of these things. So there's a little wrasse called the cleaner wrasse. A wrasse is a little kind of fish, cigar-shaped, it swims around. And the cleaner wrasse 
bass's job is to swim around cleaning parasites off of big fishes. So big fishes have learned to come up close to these little cleaner wrasses and allow themselves to be cleaned. So the cleaner wrasse gets a meal and the big fish gets its parasites removed. Well, there's another little fish that's a different family in the Blenny family that looks exactly like the cleaner wrasse. And so it'll swim up to a big fish and the big fish will mistakenly think it's about to be cleaned and the little Blenny comes up and takes a little bite of flesh out of it. And it's a carnivore. It's got these big fang teeth and then darts away before the big fish knew what even hit him. And I've been fooled by this fish, and the way I've found out is I've caught what I thought was a cleaner ass, put it in my hand, bam, it bit me on the finger, it hurt like crazy. Wow, okay, well that is a true lesson that you, uh, I hope, didn't repeat. Oh, um, absolutely. Dr. Biology, I could point out something here, that plants do something very similar. Right, I was actually going to ask, plant yeah. mimicry, let's talk about that. We don't call it mimicry, because it's not an exact replication, but plants living in the same environment can look like one another when they're not related because of the environment. So in the desert, you might find a lot of plants that are fleshy and hold water. Other environments would be Mediterranean climates, like you had in Europe or in the west coast of Australia, all have very similar environments. Southern California, you find many plants that are native to those areas that are similar to one another because they have learned to live in that kind of a very specific climate. And we often call that convergent evolution, because there are things from very different groups that converge onto the same sort of appearance, but in reality are not related. Hmm. Somehow I'm not surprised. Mother Nature seems to do very clever things. All right. We talked a little bit about Richard's travels and some of the exotic places. And you mentioned, Vicki, that you've been off to Tibet. What's the coolest place you've been to? The tops of the Tapuis in northeastern South America. These are the lost world of Conan Doyle, huge tabletop mountains that rise up out of the rainforest right on the equator. Many of them are flat on top, and there's a completely different climate on top of these than you have below. Getting to the top, however, can be very difficult, and we often use helicopters as the fastest way to get up there. So they take you up, they drop you off, they go away, they come back at some point in the future, hopefully, and pick you up. We have been stuck you know, without any food for a while, but, you know, we all could stand to lose a little weight. We call it the Smithsonian diet. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a bunch of botanists, you should be able to find some plants to eat, right? I can say we had an invertebrate biologist there who worked on worms, a bird biologist, a plant biologist, and somebody who worked on uh, moths. There's nothing to eat on top of these mountains. The moral of the story is make sure that round-trip ticket is really working. Yeah. The real moral of the story is know who's flying your helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, both of you have this real exciting part of your lives. And I'm not going to say that what we're talking about next is not exciting. It's just a shift. We use computers everywhere. As a matter of fact, sitting on the desk right here is my iPhone, which is, quite frankly, a little computer. And... It's really interesting what's happening with computers nowadays. One of the things I've noticed is we can collect a whole lot of information like we've never been able to collect before. But that seems to be a bit of a problem right now. So both of you are working on how we deal with all this information we're collecting and 
how we're going to use it so we can actually learn what's going on and we can deal with taxonomy and a lot of these things. So let's see here. Vicki, how about, what have you been doing? Well, I would say it falls into two categories. One more useful to people and the public than others. The first one is where we're just databasing the information found on the labels of the plants or animals in our museum. These data are mostly useful for people doing research. On the other hand, we're scanning in images of these organisms and we're putting up our photographs from the field and we're matching those to the entries in the database. And that's the transformation from being something useful for science to being something you can Google and find when you need it. Right. The whole world now can come to your front door, so to speak, and look through your collection. But there's more to it, right? Well, I would say what Vicki just described is exactly the world I live in as well. It's getting items databased, digitized is a general way of saying it. So you have labels from specimens entered into a computer database. You have images that are scanned and can be put up on the Internet. One of the areas I've been working on a lot lately is how do you connect all this information together? Right now we've got these great big buckets of information scattered all over the planet, and we're reaching out little tendrils between the buckets to try to connect them to each other. And we still mostly live in a world where a human has to make those connections and match them up. But we're quickly transforming into a world, thanks to the Internet, where we can have these databases connected automatically. So you can go to some place like Google or some other website and do a search, and bam, have instant access to all the museum collections, rather than going going to 10 different museums and seeing what each one has. Do you see these databases getting sophisticated enough so that the next-door neighbor is interested in something that they can actually find out what they just discovered, say, in their backyard? Maybe it's one of those uh, great sunflowers. There are movements in that direction. Very difficult to do. To do that, somebody has to sit down and put into a database all of the species you're talking about, all of the characters you're talking about, and make a big matrix. And then on the screen, it looks very simple. In Western Australia, they have a wonderful one going. They have one in New South Wales in Australia. You can identify any plant. You can go online, you can hold it in your hand, and you can say, okay, this has yellow flowers, and it has divided leaves. And they have little pictures of what they're talking about. So you can identify any known species from Western Australia by using the system. Globally, we're a long way from doing that. The thing that stops us is money, always money. You have to have people interested in it that are willing to do the work and that have the skills to do it. Right. So maybe we can get more of this citizen science involved in this. This is a theme that's coming to the forefront, on, at least on Ask a Biologist. I know it's in the world, but we're talking more and more about this. You don't have to be a trained scientist, but as you get more and more familiar with something, you might actually be one of the best experts on sunflowers in Arizona. Absolutely. And the really nice thing about this is once you get a virtual key done, every person out there that's interested adds to the data because they key it out, they can go online, they can say where they found it, and all of a sudden their backyard discovery becomes part of the larger science data information that's available globally. Well, Richard, what about you? Well, yeah, I would say that uh, that's exactly it. There's a couple of expressions that come to mind. One that we bounce around a lot in my world is that once digitized, always available. 
And so once you get the information digitized and structured in a way that it's on the Internet, then no one ever has to go through that work again. It takes a lot of money and a lot of effort to build it, but once you build it, as Vicky said, you can add on to it, and it only gets better with time, not worse. Another expression that comes to mind is the expression, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, what that means in this context is that, you know, all of these little bits of information are important by themselves, but when you can connect them all together, these incredible patterns emerge that you might not have seen if you hadn't brought them all together. So networking all this information, it's almost like a snowball effect. Once you get it going, it starts accelerating and faster, and more information begets more information, and it gets really, really exciting at that point. So if you're a computer science person out there. You love computer games. You love the the thrill of the keyboard, so to speak. You might be one of the important parts to the next frontier of biology. Absolutely. There's a whole discipline called bioinformatics that's all about this. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would suggest that there are programs all over the United States now where you can study that. Now, on this show, you don't know it, but we do three questions with all my guests. And I'm going to start with Vicki. When did you first know you wanted to be a biologist or knew you were going to be a scientist? Was there a spark that you can think of? My physics teacher in high school got me very interested in asking questions, being curious or, or sharpening my curiosity, and that led me to be convinced that I wanted to be in science. Unlike a lot of other people, it took me a few years to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I sort of like to say I wandered around in the wilderness for a few years trying out different things until I went to a field station and I learned about field biology and I fell in love with it. And from that point on, it's been a major focus of my life. All right, Richard. Well, I can't answer that question truthfully because that moment occurred before my brain was registering memories. That is, before I was three years old. My very, very earliest memories all have to do with being absolutely fascinated by fishes. Now, for most of my childhood, I didn't know that that meant I was interested in science. All I knew that was that I was just utterly interested in the natural world. Right, you didn't know what the name was, but you just knew you... Well, I just be... had this fascination. But I mean, you know, now in hindsight, looking back, that's when I knew I was going to be a scientist, even though back then I didn't know what a scientist would be. Now, I've been nurtured over the years and guided by very supportive parents, very supportive teachers, all of whom have helped steer me in the direction that I've come. And it's been just one exciting event after another. All right, well, guess what? I'm going to take it all away. You can't be a scientist. You're not going to be the biologist. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you do your scuba diving. What would you be or what would you do? I don't know that I could answer that question. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a, a few moments because I'm going to let Vicky okay. try to answer that question. And then you have to come back. I need an answer. It is a very difficult question because when I started trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was selecting among the different disciplines of biology. But if I had to do something else, looking at my skills, what I'm good at, I would probably be a water engineer. I've always been fascinated by the power of water and the way it's so simple when you look at it, but when it moves as a force, it's so complex. And it has catastrophic effects and it has beneficial effects. And I think I could really get interested in how water works. You're my first scientist to do that. I think it's great. All right, pressure's on. So it's got nothing to do with science, so engineer can't even count? No, engineer is correct. Yeah, you get to be Well, then I can answer the question. 
I love designing new devices that can be built and machined and created together. I use this CAD, computer-aided design software. And what I build are rebreather parts. That is, I use these rebreathers. I've gotten so intimately involved with I'm actually directly involved with the companies that develop these things. And I can spend hours on my computer spinning around these 3D models of what a part should look like and putting a hole of a certain diameter here and cutting an edge off. And I just love working with mechanical things. So I suppose I'd either be an engineer or a machinist of some sort. Okay, well, that means you're kind of that Jacques Cousteau, right? All right, you had the tough question. I'll go back to an easier question. And I'll start with Vicky, so you can even think about this. What advice would you have for someone who wants to become a biologist? Follow your curiosity. I would give this advice to anyone, whether they're 10 years old or a graduate student trying to decide what they want to do with their life. Go where your interests are, and you'll never be disappointed. You'll never wind up doing something that you don't like. I don't even need to think about this one. This one's easy. More or less what Vicky said, but I often frame it as follow your passion. Science is driven by passion. There's never enough money to actually run the science, so what makes up the difference is passion. And what I tell people is that when you become a biologist, don't count on making lots and lots of money owning huge houses or expensive cars. I'm, I'm sorry. You're going to get something much more valuable. You're going to enjoy every day of your life. And if I had to trade between a job that I didn't enjoy intensely every single day so that I could go on vacation for two weeks out of the year versus the life I have, which is earning enough money to get by comfortably, but enjoying and waking up every morning excited about what you're going to get done that day, believe me, that's by far the better path you can take. You know, speaking along those lines now, Richard, your office is the ocean. Now, come on. You know, that's so easy. I, I don't even have to ask that. Vicki, a lot of the time you spend in the Smithsonian. And I do. Pe- and people come to visit the Smithsonian, and they, I bet they only see one part of it. What's it like to work at the Smithsonian? Well, for a biologist, it's like being a kid in a candy store. You're surrounded by hundreds, if not millions, of things that you work on, that you can study. You have scientists from all over the world that do the same thing you do, come by to visit. And you get to go off and do wonderful things like this, talk to people that you never would see otherwise about something that you're really passionate about. And I spend most of my time when I'm not in the Smithsonian high somewhere, usually above 10,000 feet. Because for me, that's where, when you get above the tree line, that's where you get into a lot of the really interesting plants. I'm glad you defined high as you went along there. I was a little worried. (laughs) Richard, is there uh, any new digital imaging equipment that uh, has you excited nowadays? Well, I'll tell you the one. It's somewhat mundane but very exciting to us, which is high-definition video. Now, when we do our dives, you know, historically, the way you document that a species occurs at a place is you either collect a specimen or you take a still photograph of it. Now, in the old days when we had film cameras, we were limited to 36 pictures per dive. Now we have digital cameras, but even still, as I mentioned, time is your limiting factor underwater. You still take some time to line up, you know, your camera and get the picture just right. Take some time to collect a specimen. With video, we're capturing 30 high-resolution pictures every second. And we can just let that camera run, and it's amazing the information we can capture with these video, these tiny little high-definition video cameras we take with us on these dives and allows us to capture more information in our brief visits than we ever could before. Vicki, on Ask a Biologist, we have the instructions on how to make your own herbarium. 
And as a botanist, you know what we're talking about, you know, taking these plants, pressing them, labeling them properly. They end up being beautiful pieces of art. And for many, many, many years, botanists would trade these. They'd send them around the country or around the world to study them. What's going on in the digital world that's changing that? We still send lots of plants around and trade them, almost like baseball cards. If I collect four of something at the same place, I will bring them back and I will trade three with my friends in Europe or South Africa to get some of their stuff. But for the specimens we already have, the first thing we try to do when somebody wants to look at one of our specimens and they want to borrow it, they want us to mail it to them, is we take a digital image of it and we send it to them. And if they can answer their question looking at the image, then that's great. If they can't, then we loan it to them. We send it off and they look at it and they send it back. But it's a lot easier, faster, cheaper to send an image and hope that that takes care of what they need. And I will say that for our most important specimens, which are called our type collection, and you may not know this, but every single species that's been described, the name is tied to a single specimen somewhere in a museum. So those types are very valuable because they hold the name of that species. We don't like to loan those. Since we have digitized all of our types at the Smithsonian, or at least in botany, it's decreased the number of loans that we've had to make by 80%. Wow, I can believe that. Can anybody get to them then? Can they Absolutely. see these pictures? Absolutely, they're on the public website. Okay, so anybody can go to the Smithsonian and look at these. Okay. Great. Is there anything digitized for fish? Oh, yeah. Uh, Jack Randall, who's my advisor uh, when I earned my Ph.D., has uh, something like 20,000 images of fishes that he shot on film, and about 10,000 have been digitized and are online. Marvelous. Okay, I want to thank you again, Vicki, for being with us. It's been a pleasure. And Richard? Thank you. Come uh, visit the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> and? Bishop Museum in Honolulu. And in case you'd like to listen to more of Vicky's and Richard's adventures and, well, misadventures as biologists, check out our Darwin Distinguished Lecture Series at darwin.asu.edu, and then just click on the podcast and video link. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is a division of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember... Even though our program's not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.